hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Simple Homebrewing. Now available at all your finest retailers and also currently 25% off at Brewers Publications. Now between the two of us, we have over 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. On today's episode, we're going to head to the pub. We're going to give you the beer news like we always do. We're going to stop by the brewery and talk about our latest brewing adventures. And then we're in the lounge, we're going to spend some time with Gary Glass of the AHA talking about the virtual big brew that's coming up. And, well, the state of homebrewing as it exists right now and what he's going to be brewing. And what he's got in his basement, which sounds pretty darn impressive, huh? You have to be careful with comments like that. That comes off like a serial killer. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And, of course, then we're going to get you your questions, a quick tip, something other than beer, and get you on your merry, merry way. But before we do any of that, here are a few messages from the people who make this show possible. This episode is brought to you by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association, a group of more than 40,000 individuals from more than 70 countries who share a passion for brewing and enjoying great beer. Learn more at homebrewersassociation.org. And by you, our listeners, go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Hey, welcome back. And if you uh, use the services of any of our sponsors, be sure to let them know where you heard about them. And we just had a new episode of The Brew Files come out uh, last few days. It was episode 86. We call it The Water Primer. Uh, and we kind of talk about our views on how you deal with water in brewing and what we do. Yep, all about it. It's your basic water course sort of done our way. So hopefully you guys listen to it and that comes, well, a little bit handy to you. And that also means that we're going to be getting a whole lot of feedback in the next few episodes from people telling us how wrong we were about stuff. Well, that's that's water for you. <laughs> that's us for you. Now, don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can click the AHA, Amazon, Brewers, Friends, or BYO links on the websites and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... It's an organization called Not One More Vet. Veterinarians have an extremely high suicide rate due to the stress of their jobs taking care of our furry friends. So uh, we want to help them out. And you can help us help them by going to experimentalbrew.com, clicking on the Patreon link, and throwing us a couple bucks that we can pass along. Indeed. And now it's time for your feedback. feedback. 
And our first piece of feedback is going to inevitably stick in your ears. And it comes from uh, Joe Lynch <laughs> in Kansas City, who said, These are the times that try all men's souls. The world is facing COVID-19. We can win. Hear me out. Make a soundbite of Denny singing his beer song. Every time you wash your hands, sing along with Denny. No virus could live through that. And neither could anybody's sanity. <laughs> I just love that. Oh, man. Joe, thank you very much for the suggestion. I've actually been doing that because as bad as that song is, it uh, doesn't bug me as much as singing Happy Birthday while I'm washing my hands. So thanks for the idea. Who knows? Maybe we can make it go viral. Oh. No. Uh, our next piece of feedback comes from John Horn, who congratulates us on our 200th episode, uh, which, yeah, hey, 200. Uh, he says, thank you for all the work you put into the podcast. A special thanks to you for all the hours of editing. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Here's my end of isolation celebration brewing plan. In preparation for normalcy, I'm going to brew a Belgian dark strong. In order to get the yeast ready, I'm first brewing a smallish Belgian pale ale. Both my recipes will most likely be highly derived from brewing classic styles. Good plan. And something other, looking for some distraction and time consumption during this crazy quarantine days? I recommend the Wheel of Time series by Robert Jordan. Drew doubtless knows what I'm talking about. Cheers. And boy, f over, what, 14 books plus ancillary materials? Right. Yeah, that, you, you're going to be able to kill some time in a quarantine period. <laughs> yeah, I, we, we've both we've both read uh, at least a, par a portion of this. Uh, I got up to like book eight or nine or something like that before I lost track of what was going on and just gave up on it. But these books average around a thousand pages each. So if you read all 14 books, that will keep you busy for quite a while. Yeah, and they're good books. And, and I, of course, Robert Jordan died before he could finish the series. But Brandon Sanderson, who is basically a machine when it comes to writing, picked it up and finished off the series. And one of these days, I'll finish it off, too. <laughs> yeah, I might or might not. I, I lost track of it so badly that I decided I would have to go back and start again. But then the idea of rereading 7,000 pages was maybe a little bit more than I could deal with. Well, Robert Jordan lost track, too. <laughs> I think that's obvious, because by the time you get to about book eight, you're kind of going, does he even remember what the story was? Does anybody remember what the story was? And our final <laughs> really? piece of feedback comes from Danny White. You will remember Danny had uh, given us the cake priming question a little while ago. And so he said, I thought I'd follow up. First, I still cannot get CO2 around here. So I have all the ingredients I bought to fill my newfound time with sitting in the garage. I'm working on collecting bottles. It feels like I just purged all these little pesky space hogs. Once I have enough, I'll brew one of those batches I planned. Probably cream ale. Coming into spring means yard work, and that seems like a better bottle conditioning candidate than the triple IPA I was super excited and dropped the coin on hops for. Fingers crossed the local suppliers go back to selling to the public soon. So to my keg-conditioned blonde ale, here's what I did. On March 29th, I added 3.4 ounces of corn sugar to one cup of tap water and brought it to a boil. Cooled room temperature, add it to a clean and sanitized keg. Gravity transferred five gallons of beer to the keg with the priming solution. Concerned about having enough head pressure to seal the lid, I applied a hefty amount of lube to the lid O-ring and closed it up. Gave a gentle slosh and stuck it in the spare bathroom. Then I crossed my fingers, the lid would seal, and forgot about it. Today, I tested the lid seal by popping the relief valve. I got a vigorous and got a twinge of excitement. Next was to check the carb level. I drew a few ounces from a picnic tab, 
The carb level is within a margin of error for what I would expect. If anything, a touch light for where I normally carb this beer. So I'll give it a couple more days and then add it to the keyser. Then I suppose I'll drink what I can until the head pressure runs down and I can't push any more beer out. Well, good job, Danny. You yeah, got beer. Yeah, no kidding, man. Yeah. And uh, you know what? After we got this email from Danny, I checked on Amazon and uh, it looks like you can still buy the uh, little CO2 chargers and cartridges there. So, you know, the the ideal thing then would be to uh, carb your beer by priming it and then uh, use one of those little guys for dispensing it. Yeah, don't don't try and carbonate a beer with those things. <laughs> no, it'll take like a couple cases of cartridges. Yeah, so that's that. Thank you, everybody, for your feedback. And remember, you can always leave us feedback at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. And, you know, who knows? We might read it here. We may not. But thank you anyway. And thank you for caring. <laughs> thank you for caring indeed. Okay, I think it's time for a beer and some beer talk. So uh, stick around. We're going to head over to the Experimental Brewing Virtual Pub. and When we come back, we'll be talking about the beer when I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the work to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your word in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art. They're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Yakima Chief Hops is a 100% grower-owned global hop supplier located in the Pacific Northwest with a mission to connect family farms to the world's finest brewers. With their new online store, YCH products are now available wherever brewers choose to shop. Browse the aisles of your local homebrew store or buy direct from YCH at shop.yakimachief.com. Also, experience the new YCH Mobile Solutions app, a free, sustainable alternative to the popular hop variety handbook with information on more than 120 hop varieties to help you make the best beer possible. Available now in the Apple Store or at Google Play. Welcome back, and welcome to the Experimental Brewing Virtual Pub. Drew and I are having beers 800 miles apart, just to really maintain our social distance. And, uh, Drew, you have something interesting, it sounds like, today. Yes, yeah, so there's a little local brewery not too far away from me, and I referenced them in the water show the other day, uh, called Ogopogo. And Ogopogo is the name of the lake monster in Lake Okanagua up in British Columbia. I think I said that right. Anyway, it's right there. Um, and they've they've run with this theme of they name all their beers after fictional monsters. 
So, like, their Mexican lager is named La Llorona, after the uh, crying lady of Mexican folklore. She may kidnap your children. Um, and so this one is, they have a hazy IPA called uh, Charlie. And Ogopogo has, like, a lot of places switched to doing pickup or delivery. And since I'm in their delivery range, I needed something hoppy. And so they sent me the Charlie Hazy IPA, which is actually one of my favorites of the whole hazy category, just because it is slightly bitter, very hop oily, but also very smooth. And it doesn't have that, um, it doesn't have that gritty mouthfeel that I get from a lot of the hazies. So it's a very pleasant beer to drink with a whole hell of a lot of hop oil on it. So I highly recommend if you can get your hands on it. Go get yourself some Ogopogo Charlie Hazy IPA. And Charlie, I forget which Lake Charlie's part of, but Charlie is another Lake Monster. <laughs> I was wondering about that. I thought maybe you just misspelled Charlie. Nope. It's a, a Lake Monster. <laughs> wow. That, that's an intimidating uh, name for a beer. I know. But it's a really nice, really nice beer. Cool. So uh, Charlie is apparently a fictional, or a maybe not fictional, Sea serpent believed to live in the deep alpine waters of Pyatt Lake near McCall, Idaho. Oh, really? Well, next time I'm on a road trip, may have to swing by there and check it out. There you go. And Denny, what are you drinking? Well, like you, I'm drinking local again because it's just the easy way to do things. Uh, plus, I can go to my cellar and pick it out. And I'm drinking Ale Song once again because, as I'm sure you all know, it's one of my favorite breweries in the entire world. Picked up uh, our latest shipment from them uh, recently, and one of the beers in there was called Kentucky Kilt, a scotch ale that is aged in Kentucky bourbon barrels. And uh, I'm kind of like into wee heavies at the moment since I just got done kegging my wee shroomy. So I figured I'd pull one of these out, and actually I kind of stocked up on these because this is a great beer for aging. Uh, I intend to try try to leave one around for a while, um, and uh, but I couldn't leave them all because it's so good. So I had to open one up. Uh, it's rich. It's malty. Uh, the bourbon is definitely there, especially like when you do a retronasal after you have a sip of beer. You could almost swear you just had a shot of bourbon with it. Uh, I'm, I'm, I mean, it's pretty well integrated right now. I had this uh, previously, oh, maybe like six, nine months ago, and it was good, but it was a little rough around the edges. Uh, now, six or nine months later, the flavors are starting to integrate really nicely. So I'm going to try and leave those other bottles alone for as long as possible to get it to come back together. And it's also 12.9%, so uh, a glass of it could last you all afternoon. Yeah, well, all I know is I'm uh, I'm putting one of my French 75s in the fridge to have for my birthday. So, And I remember that Kentucky <sighs> Kilt's pretty damn good, too. Yeah, it is. Uh, I wish I still had some French 75, but I do have a couple of uh, Elsong's other gin barrel beers. Uh, broke one out the other day because we hit 75 degrees here, and it was like time for something to remind me of summer. Absolutely. And so speaking of something that Denny had just talked about, uh, staying local, I saw a term the other day that uh, kind of was interesting to me, the idea of being a patriot pandemic and shopping local. And that's particularly true for so many of our breweries. So in between the episodes, Bart Watson, who is the uh, chief economist for the Brewers Association, he's the guy who, put out, who puts out all the money numbers. 
And he put out some rather distressful numbers for what's going to happen in the craft beer industry right now. And, you know, talking about potentially seeing losses up as high as 50% of the industry. And because the problem is that so much of the industry now is made up of very small brewers who, as we've talked about, depend upon the taproom model to actually stay open and, and draw their funds in. Well, right now, we can't go to taprooms. So, a good number of breweries out there are doing beer for delivery or pickup. Like I said, uh, Ogopogo delivered to me. Denny went and picked up his stuff for Mailsong. Uh, if you have breweries in your area, please go and support them. I mean, right now, the interesting part is we've been talking that the the mid-majors, the regionals, you know, the, the New Belgians of the world, uh, or even actually smaller, you know, say like Great Lakes or Bells or whatnot, have been kind of really hurt by the rise of the local taproom. And right now, that trend is actually reversed. So that's great for those guys. But right now, you've got the very small businesses that are in your neighborhoods that are hurting. So go support them however you can. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, you know, do what you can. Uh, let's face it, a lot of breweries were kind of on the edge before this even started. So uh, if you have a brewery in your area that you like, please support them however you can. Absolutely. And speaking of supporting and beer, uh, the New York Brewery Other Half, you know, which has been one of those trendy places with – uh, the hazies and other beers that have people lining up around the block to buy the cans. Other half has created a project very much kind of like the resilience project that we had from say Sierra Nevada or the various ones that Russian rivers put on in the past. And they call this one all together. And it is a IPA recipe that they are donating to the community along with the labels that are being donated by their printer and a bunch of other things. And the whole idea is that what they want to do is make this beer, put this out there and have money from the sales of the beer go to support hospitality professionals. Because don't forget, a good portion of this country is employed in the hospitality industry. You know, people who are running your hotels, running your restaurants, doing all that sort of work that uh, that we do in order to entertain ourselves. And right now, they're all kind of out of business. Um, and so the only ask about this is basically volunteer to brew the recipe and then make sure a portion of the funds or the proceeds go to support the hospitality workers in your area. And so, for instance, other half has said that they are going to uh, donate the proceeds to the Restaurant Workers Community Foundation uh, over there. And they're asking people to basically do the same sort of thing locally. Yeah, man, it's a, it's a great thing and help out. And they actually have the recipe on Dropbox, which is amazing. And you know the it's a you know it's it's yield hazy IPA, and they have a homebrew version of the recipe too. So if you're into it, make sure you can do the the homebrew. And it's a, a hazy IPA with London ale, two row flaked oats, carapils, bittered with Columbus. There you go, and then a bunch of mosaic, Cascade, Simcoe, Citra, and more mosaic and Cascade. So uh, actually a fair amount of like old school with a little bit of uh, mosaic in there. Yeah, man, that sounds actually pretty good. Yeah. And by the way, they do also have variants say to say, hey, you know, do a New England IPA or do a West Coast IPA version of it, which is, I, I think, the reason for the hopping choice. So that that's kind of fun. It's good to see a project like that. It's good to see uh, people banding together to kind of help out with their community. 
And there's another story that's been making the rounds. Uh, I actually saw this quite a while ago in some of our local papers, but it seems to be getting some national attention now. And there have been some extinct pioneer apple varieties found in orchards here in the Pacific Northwest, uh, most if not all of them cider varieties. And it's really cool that people are out looking for these things, both for the historical record and uh, to hopefully be able to breed and grow them again, huh? Yeah, and so in in this particular case, it's the Temperate Orchard Conservancy in uh, Oregon, so right around where you are, and it's two guys who um, who are basically wandering through various canyons and backwoods areas in the Pacific Northwest. They do a bunch of research to try and find out where homesteads were, and remember, depending upon when homesteads were founded, part of the idea about a homestead was you could get the land as long as you made improvements to the land. And so one of those forms of improvements was to establish an orchard. That's what Johnny Appleseed was doing way back when. He wasn't going around planting apples for everybody to eat. Um, and so they've been looking at old homesteading maps and trying to find where people's farms would have been. And then they go hunting to see whether or not there's any orchards there. And then they take samples and they tag the trees that they've taken samples from. And then they send them back. Um, they, they send them back to the university to go have them identified. And the process of identification is not a genetic identification. They're literally looking through books and uh, planographs and, you know, giant images to try and find what variety that apple matches to. Now, they've said in the past that they they usually consider themselves lucky if they're finding like one or two in a season. And this last year, they found 10, which is absolutely amazing. And, you know, so remember, apples have... um a very fast genetic drift. If you plant an apple seed, you don't get a tree like its parent. So the other thing that they do is once they know that they've got unique apples, they go back out and they find those trees again. And then they take graftings from them to go create new trees that they can then grow using these older varieties. And so, of course, me being me, given the fact that these are um, old apples, they're more than likely used for making cider. So my first thought is, hmm, wonder what sort of cider I can make. <laughs> oh, probably pretty good, man. I make cider from apples that uh, aren't cider apples, and it turns out really good. So, you know, uh, it would be interesting to get a hold of these. Hopefully they will uh, start growing them again, and uh, we can get our hands on some to give it a try. Yeah, well, and that's actually the way that they normally fund the, the whole project, you know, this lost apple project, is they have a, a fair where they sell the grafted rootstock. And unfortunately, because of the whole situation right now they were unable to hold the fair so they've lost out on their opportunity to raise about the 10k that they need every year to keep the project going so hopefully they can uh they can figure out alternative funding paths and still go out there because it's kind of cool to recover some of our uh, pioneer heritage in an edible form yeah you know and uh the cider symposium i was going to go to has been rescheduled for um, march uh in 2021 so i'm hoping maybe i can get some more info on these when i'm there that would be perfect and with all of that said it's time to head over to the brewery and talk about what we've been doing how it's been going and uh, all things related to brewing so stick around we're going to be right back. are you having trouble finding enough time to homebrew and give attention to the other important things in your life is your newest brewed ipa experiment coming at the expense of other obligations don't neglect partner or pet 
Brew with the Genesis Fermenter. Learn why at genesisfermenter.com and find them wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. As a family-owned and run business, Weist invites you and your family to be even more involved with homebrewing this spring with our Spring Saver Private Collection. Dive into the science behind brewing and the unique characteristics of the four different species in this release. Inspired by our Oregon roots, 1217 West Coast IPA allows your hops and malts to shine with a balanced profile. The complexity of 3031 Saison Brett Blend is perfect for warmer temps, and aging will improve with the season. Rounding out the possibilities is 5223 Lactobacillus Brevis for your next kettle sour. Test your skills with one of our pro brewer recipes at yeastlab.com. These strains are available now through the end of June. sitting here with all this brewing gear going around us, airlocks blurping. I guess that's what airlocks do is blurp. And uh, we're going to tell you what we've been brewing recently because we've been like brewing like crazy, right? Oh, yeah. And, you know, I got time on my hands, so I might as well do something with it. Well, I don't have that much time <laughs> on my hands, but. Yeah, I was going to say, man. <laughs> but, yeah, so people will remember that I talked about making a cluster fugget beer, and that is now in the keg. It's been mostly clarified, and it's also been carbonated, and I've been drinking it because I needed something with hops. And you know what? I got to admit, I did the, if listeners will recall, I I told people I was going to do the two-day dry hopping technique that we had talked about, you know, that kind of cold extraction. Yeah, yeah. So I dialed my conical down to 38 or so and let that settle and, and then hit it with two ounces of cluster fugget uh, for that two-day period of time. And... Oh boy, the hop character in there. I mean, that's a lot of hop. Isn't that amazing how that works like that, man? I, I couldn't believe it when I first tried it. Uh, I've got I've got a, a rye IPA on that I put uh, three ounces of those uh, of the Veterans Blend hops in uh, the same way. Uh, two days at thirty five. It is amazing. I love it. Uh, this is this is definitely my new dry hop technique. Yeah. So the next beer I'm going to make, which is going to be tomorrow, because I have. Taking a vacation day. Happy have, birthday! Oh, thank you. Oh, yeah, I'm going to take a vacation day for my birthday, and well, since I can't go anywhere, I might as well go to the brewery and make something. So I figured I would make a New England IPA and figure out what my hop schedules were going to be, and do do some more of that cold extraction and see how that works as well with something that people have been talking about more with IPAs and and whatnot. You know, uh, this came up in a discussion on Facebook I was reading today, too, about using that technique for New England IPA. And somebody had pointed out that I I thought that everybody was, like, dry hopping their New England IPAs during fermentation. And a couple people replied that that is really kind of like going by the by. And uh, a lot of the big guys are not dry hopping during fermentation these days. So there you go. 
So no more, uh, they're not dry hopping during the primary uh, now? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I didn't get any exact uh, names or details or anything like that. Just kind of this general overall comment about uh, a lot of the big guys aren't doing that with their New England IPAs anymore. So interesting. who cool. knows? Yeah. Well, listeners, if you know anything about this or anything more, uh, let us know because that's always going to be fun. And then, of course, the other thing I did is I also made a wine because why not? Uh, I had a wine kit sitting in, in the brewery that was mocking me and taking up space. And so I took 15 minutes and I made it. And now it's now it's in still in the primary. So I did it in my 10-gallon keg. And I flooded the keg with CO2 to keep everything nice and clean. And I'm going to rack it off later today or possibly tomorrow. And then start aging it to allow myself to have a nice full-body red wine. And, of course, me being me and me hating bottles, and also I don't have a ton of wine bottles on hand to do this with, I'm going to kick it. Are you going to serve it with argon in order to keep it from getting carbonated? No, that's way too fancy. I'm just going to push it with low levels of CO2. Okay. And, yeah, uh, that it, should look, work. If it gets pétillant, it gets pétillant. Yeah. Around my house, we never have uh, a lack of wine bottles, thanks to Paula. Well, yeah, the only problem is the, the wine that uh, my wife likes. A lot of rosé producers have moved to using... Uh, screw tops. Yeah. And so, you know, all of hers are screw tops, and I don't really feel like putting a big red in screw top bottles. Oh, everybody does. <laughs> well, not this guy. So, besides, <laughs> pigs are also nice and convenient, and who doesn't want to surprise people by having wine on tap? Yeah, exactly, man. Would you like a nice glass of wine, sir? Why, yes, that sounds lovely. Excuse me while I go tap it. <laughs> And by the way, I know that in a lot of places, uh, tap wine has been a thing for a while, particularly in Oregon and Washington and some here in California as well. And I imagine in other places around the world. And that's where Denny is talking about the whole, like, do you push with argon or nitrogen or some other neutral gas that you can push that won't absorb into the liquid? Yeah, I think most of the people around here with wine on tap are using argon. Yeah, I, I think so. But still... It's it's interesting. I like the idea of having wine on tap. Uh, I got to get that mead moving again. So I have that last little bit that last little bit of Tupelo honey I bought in 2008. I turned into a big stonking mead of like 29 bricks. So uh, that should just about be done with fermentation. So I'm gonna uh, do something to so I can get it uh, to age. Cool. And what about you, sir? Yeah, I've been brewing a lot, too. Uh, like I said, I had made uh, basically my rye IPA grist, but with uh, 100% Veterans Blend hops. Uh, just kegged that up recently. Uh, I have my Hublon Schuf homage. Uh, I just cold crashed that yesterday. And probably, oh, like around Tuesday, someplace between Tuesday and Thursday, depending on what it looks like when I take a sample. I'll toss in a couple ounces of Amarillo dry hops. Man, and I haven't used Amarillo for dry hop in ages. And I, you know, this beer makes me remember how much I really, really love that hop. Yeah, I think Amarillo kind of got lost in the weeds after Citra came out. Um, yeah, I, uh, maybe so. But, you know, it's a it's a great hop. So I'm really looking forward to this beer. Basically, it was uh, bittered with Chinook. I put in like a couple ounces of really nice Zots uh, just to flame out. And uh, then it went into the fermenter and it's been fermenting for about a week and a half. So, like I said, I'll, I'll crash it for a few days, toss in the dry hops for two days and keg that baby up. 
I was going to say, wasn't the original Ublon Shoof, uh, yeah, it was what, bittered with CTZ? Yeah. And then, yeah, flavored with Zots and Amarillo. No, as far as I know, man, this is, this is the way it really is. I mean, again, that's the key words there are as far as I know. Right. And besides, you're not really trying to clone Ublon Shoof, as we always say, clones are pointless. Instead, we're trying to do homages. That's right, man. Something to make me think back to all that time I spent in Belgium drinking it. Uh, something to make uh, Paula remember how much she enjoyed it there. So, uh, And then just yesterday, I cranked out another batch of my no-tie brown ale, uh, a recipe I make over and over and over again because I just love it so much. And we thought, uh, well, you know, it's spring. It's starting to warm up, but we can still get some cooler days. So let's have something uh, a little darker on tap for that. Well, so, and that uh, reminds me. We have a listener suggestion hanging out there for brew files about brown ale, and we will get to it because we both like brown ales. Yeah, American browns. I, I'm, you know, I have a hard time finding English browns, and I haven't tried enough to really find one I like, but American brown I like a lot. Uh, there was a little bit of a setback on this brew. Uh, the day before I was going to brew, my wife came in and said, you know, there's like water pouring down at the back of the garage foundation. And I'm like, what? I was just in there yesterday brewing. Everything was fine. And uh, I went in there. Sure enough, there was water. Uh, a piece of sheetrock was soaked, water running all over the garage floor. Uh, pulled off the sheetrock and found a tiny, tiny pinhole in one of the PEX pipes that was just spraying water all over. Uh, it was the uh, the line from my water heater, which is just a small one I keep under the sink in there. So I was able to uh, disconnect and cap off uh, that line and, you know, cap off the water heater. So I'm without hot water in the garage at the moment. If only you had uh, some way to heat water. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what? Uh, that's that's a hassle, too, when I'm used to just turning on the faucet. So I think what I'm going to do is uh, give that pipe a lot of time to empty out and dry out and try putting some silicon sealer or something like that on it and see if I can actually seal it back up and get my water back. And if not, then one of these days I'll make a trip to the home improvement store and get some pipe to replace that. But uh, well, I was gonna say the good thing is PEX is pretty easy to work with. So yeah, it is. Um, you know, it, the position, the place that it's in is gonna be a little challenging to get a new piece cut in. But fortunately, like I said, I, you know, I can live without hot water out there for a while till I get it done. So it hasn't really held up the brewing. It uh, just kind of makes the cleanup a little colder than it would be otherwise. Yeah, well, there was one time when uh, my wife and I had just moved in together, and we were renting a house, and the main water water heater failed. And I'll tell you what, I don't think she's ever been as appreciative of the fact that I'm a homebrewer as she was then, because with no hot water, of course, how do you take a shower or a bath? And so every night I would go out to the backyard, and I would fire up the brew kettle, and I would heat up enough hot water to boiling that I could balance out the cold water and we could all take a bath. Ooh, that sounds kinky. Well, hey. But yeah, it, it, there are times when uh, being a homebrewer is uh, kind of handy. Now, I also wanted to say that I think the funniest comment that I've seen all week, because, of course, you know, Denny and I spend a lot of time trolling through forums and, and Facebook and all sorts of stuff, you know, because that's what we do. And there was a question that popped up in one of the Facebook homebrew groups that asked, 
if Denny's favorite yeast, you know, the 1450, uh, would make a good hazy IPA, knowing that that would, uh, that would not be something that Denny did. Did you think that really that that was uh, the the purpose of that comment? I thought maybe the guy was asking a, a legitimate question. Oh no, I think it totally was a legitimate question. It just made me laugh, and, cause, yeah. <laughs> and, and he also pointed out the fact that uh, yeah, I, I don't think Denny would would appreciate this one. And you know, I don't care. I use it for whatever. I'm not going to be making anything hazy with it. But if it works for you, man, then that's a good thing to know. Yep. And then I think the other thing that we need to talk about, because I've seen this popping up more and more. So there's been some news recently that CO2 is going to be potentially experiencing some shortfalls because of the change in manufacturing that's happening right now. And, you know, people are going, oh, my God, what do we do? What do we do? And so some people have been uh, playing around with it. And, of course, some people are having trouble getting CO2 anyway. Um, And they've been playing around with doing some CO2 capture work in order to try and, you know, either carbonate the beer or the one I've mostly seen is move and purge kegs, right? And this is probably going to become more of a topic that's getting talked about, but we figured we'd address it ahead of the curve. And CO2 capture is a thing that is done in the brewing industry, but it is a giant gnarly pain in the butt. Yeah, they have the equipment for it, and we don't. Uh, You know, I've heard people say, well, you know, I'll just like – hook my uh, fermenter to a, uh, to a keg and, you know, run the CO2 into there. And it's like, eventually that keg is going to start building up pressure and you won't be able to get any more CO2 in and you won't even be venting it from your fermenter anymore. So, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, so be really careful. You're going to try and do anything like that with anything glass. Don't be a dummy. And then the other thing you have to remember is if you increase the pressure in your fermenter, you're going to impact your yeast. So that may may or may not work. I mean, remember, after all, I love to make saisons. They're definitely not going to do that. And even if you do go and look at like what the professional breweries are doing when they're doing CO2 capture, there's a lot of scrubbing and filtering that happens as well. Yeah, uh, you know, it, it's one of those things, if you really want to play around with it, go for it. Just be careful and sensible about it. Uh, I have never heard of anybody having much luck with this. I know of one guy that tried it, and after a lot of equipment building and experimentation, he managed to actually kind of make it work, but not well enough so that he actually kept up doing it. So, Yeah, uh, that was on the old uh, green board. Yep, which, exactly. Which had, does the green board even still exist? You know, I don't know, but I know we have a couple of the old members who listen to the show, so maybe they'll uh, tell us if they have any idea if it's still out there. Yeah, and I just remember that that thread because that was sort of epic, and I admired the chutzpah behind it. And certainly never anything I was going to do. <laughs> yeah, exactly, man. And, and of course, uh, I understand the temptation because I think, what, a fermentation will produce 30 times the volume of your beer in terms of CO2? I thought it was 50, but I don't remember for sure. It's a lot. So I understand the temptation to watch all that CO2 wafting out there. and um, Yeah, it's it's a challenge. I, you know, play with it. I just don't expect that it's going to be your primary source of CO2. Yeah, right. Exactly. That's why we've been getting questions from people about priming kegs and stuff also. And uh, I well, would tend to think that that's a, a much better way to go. Yep, absolutely. So... There you go, CO2 capture, some brewing adventures, and of course we'll come back uh, next time with more of our own brewing adventures. But in the meanwhile, let us know what you've been brewing. Uh, another listener uh, hit us up on Twitter to say that he just did my Expressway Mild. It went kettle to glass in six days. So Oh, cool. You can do it. And that, that recipe is 
amazingly awesome for doing in under 10 days. Great, man. Well, let's take a break here and uh, wander over to the lounge. We're going to be talking to Gary Glass, the director of the American Homebrewers Association again, uh, about the upcoming virtual big brew. And we're going to even talk to Gary about what he's been brewing. So stick around and we're going to be right back. This episode is brought to you by Brewers Publications, publisher of historical brewing techniques, the lost art of farmhouse brewing. Purchase your copy of Historical Brewing Techniques at BrewersPublications.com. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Welcome to the lounge, everybody. We are going to be talking to AHA director Gary Glass today about the upcoming virtual Big Brew, uh, a worldwide brewing event. And we're going to be talking to him about his brew system and what he likes to brew and how he does it. So that said, here's Gary. Hey, everybody. We are here in the lounge, and today our guest is once again Mr. Gary Glass, the director of the AHA. Thanks for being with us today, Gary. Hey, great to be with you as always. So uh, are you getting any of the uh, snow in Colorado that the Midwest is getting, or are you beautiful like us here on the West Coast? Uh, We got hammered. We got about a foot of snow yesterday. Wow. Jeez. We've had snow on Easter once here, and it was a shock, so I can't imagine. It, it snowed on Easter, too, yeah. I mean, I, my, my daughter and I built a snowman on Easter. <laughs> well, there you go, man. That keeps her busy, you know. <laughs> Use Easter eggs for the eyes. <laughs> so the real reason we're here today is not to talk about weather, but to talk about uh, this year's Big Brew, which is going to be kind of a, a different format. So... Uh, Rather than me screwing it up, why don't you explain what's going on? Okay. Well, first off, Big Brew is, uh, is the AHA celebration of uh, National Homebrew Day. So Congress recognized National Homebrew Day back in uh, 1988, uh, our, the 10-year anniversary of the American Homebrewers Association and federal legalization of, of homebrewing. Uh, and so we, we created this event around National Homebrew Day. So every year, first Saturday of May, uh, we encourage uh, homebrewers to get together and brew, uh, and we provide a recipe with, you know, that, that 
people can choose to brew, but we have, uh, this is the single biggest event we have in terms of participation. We have thousands of homebrewers from all over the world. Uh, we've had homebrewers from every single continent, uh, except for Antarctica, uh, participate. Uh, and, uh, obviously this year, uh, things are a little different. Um, we can't have people getting together, uh, to, to brew, unfortunately. Um, but, we are certainly, that, that does not mean that homebrewers can't participate in Big Brew this year. So we're doing it as a, what we're calling virtual Big Brew. Hopefully you're not virtually brewing beer, you're actually brewing beer <laughs> on, uh, on May 2nd. Uh, and so we have uh, set up on our website a way for people to, to sign up and let pledge, pledge to brew. Uh, and so we actually have uh, really tremendous participation already. Uh, I think we've got over... Uh, thousand people signed up to uh, yeah uh thousand fifty already signed up seven thousand six hundred and seventy gallons to be brewed we've got people from every state including and as well as dc 32 different countries participating so uh you know obviously people are eager to to brew and uh to uh, virtually get together i guess as a as a homebrewing community yeah, well, I just signed up about 10 minutes ago, man, so now you have one more. Awesome. Yeah, and uh, you'll notice, so you probably get an email from us confirming that you're, you're registered to brew. Within, and within seconds, uh, that email showed up. With that, and in that email, there's a promo code for uh, joining the American Home Brewers Association. So anybody who's pledging to brew, we're going to give you an, uh, an opportunity to get, get an AHA membership for 5 bucks off, just for participating. That's cool, man. Well, but how's that help me? I'm a lifetime member. <laughs> well, it doesn't. <laughs> you, can, you can join again. Just make your contribution. There you go. Well, and so let's just actually... Just think of it this way. As a lifetime member, you don't have to spend your money to be a, be a member. You've already done that. I know. I just... Uh, I love to, to joke about that. And, and truthfully, I only became a lifetime member, I think, what, like three years ago? So... I'm still extracting my value. Um, now, Gary, as you as you allude to in in the past, we've always had uh, parties, people getting together in, in homebrew shop lots and all that sort of thing, brewing. And there's always been a couple recipes available. Can you tell us about the recipe for this year? Uh, we've got our homebrew town event coming up in June in Nashville, and uh, our keynote speaker for uh, homebrew con is Bailey Spalding of Jackalope Brewing Company. And you know, we asked uh, Bailey to brew uh, commemorative beer for for HomebrewCon, and so she came up with a, a recipe for uh, that beer. And we thought, well, that, wouldn't it be cool? Like, since not everybody gets to to participate in HomebrewCon, wouldn't it be cool if everybody got a chance to brew this beer? And so we're using that as the the official recipe. And so that the recipe they came up with is a Pangea Proxima Polar IPA, and so. This uh, this recipe includes uh, the Lollaman Boss uh, Kleitsch strain, uh, at, but it's basically like a it's like a West Coast IPA, but with uh, Kleitsch yeast and New Zealand hops. So you know, the the polar part of it is that the yeast is coming from somewhere close to the North Pole, the, the hops are coming from somewhere close to the South Pole, uh, and malts from somewhere in the middle and. West Coast IPA style. So, uh, yeah. Now, recognizing that 
you know, some of those ingredients aren't necessarily, aren't, aren't super widely available. We did include a, uh, a list of alternate ingredients or alternate hops as well as if you can't get that, that particular yeast strain, there's, um, uh, basically brewing a West Coast IPA, the Nottingham or the, the BRY, uh, 97 strains will work just fine. Yeah, I was gonna yeah say that's the, that's the, the direction I'm going, man. Because I have to admit that those ingredients are challenging, especially right now. Yeah, and and we're actually, we're also working on a uh, on another kind of a basic recipe that one of our uh, one of our local homebrew supply shops here in Colorado made a suggestion like, hey, you know, I I'm having trouble getting some of these ingredients. So how about we we do a a, a more uh, generic recipe that people can fill in the malts with. You know, could could be maybe supporting a local monster and whatever ingredients the, their local homebrew supply shop uh, has available. So we're going to get that posted as well as a as another alternative. But really, the the important thing is just to to be brewing, uh, having all these folks brewing at the same time. So uh, we definitely want to make sure that that people are supporting their local homebrew supply shop. So I'd rather you, you know, substitute ingredients to, based on what your local store has than than you know necessarily go go online but if that's what you're what you're wanting to do that's fine too i'm sure that neither of you will be surprised to hear that i'm going to be brewing rye ipa hmm. <laughs> it, it was a big it was a big brew recipe once you know uh, let's yeah. make it again yeah and, and, right. and, 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 as, as i said you know it's it's about brewing it's not about you know, beer so um you know not everybody's into ipa so uh you know if you're not into an ipa Brew whatever you are into. Just just be brewing with thousands and thousands of other people all across the world on uh, on May second. Well, and this will be the first time in forever that I'll actually be able to take part in Big Brew because normally the same weekend is the weekend of the Southern California Homebrewers Festival. So ah, that's that, right. That's not happening this year. So I'll be brewing, and I got to think about some sort of. Uh, Quarantine variation on a saison. <laughs> Jeez, you know, man. Personally, I'm staying as far away from anything having to do with this whole thing as possible. I don't even want to think about it because I'm forced into thinking about it too much. So that's my theory. Yeah, well, that's a good point, and you know, I think that's that's one of the things. I mean, we're we're definitely seeing. Uh, I, I mean, I've talked to several homebrew supply shop owners, and you know, they. Even though they're, most of them are, are having to close their doors and, and do, you know, curbside pickup arrangements, um, a lot of stores are seeing an increase in, in business, uh, you know, because we're, we're stuck at home and, you know, thankfully for us, we're homebrewers. So, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> One of the things that we most love is something that we do at home anyway. You know, and I stopped by my store uh, a few weeks ago to pick up some stuff, and, and Jason very kindly brought it out to my car for me. Uh, but he said that his business has really, really taken off. That You know, he'd been kind of seeing like a little bit of the, the beginning of warmer weather slump that often happens with home brewing. And he said that uh, in one week he had wiped out three weeks of the slump that he'd had before. I've heard that from multiple stores. My my local store in Longmont, Colorado, said that March was the best best year, best month they had had in five years. Jeez! Oh, now, wow. not all stores are in that situation. Obviously, closing your doors and and uh, you know having 
people to do buy curbside, you know, it doesn't doesn't necessarily work for every single shop, and so uh, we definitely have seen a, a mix of, of business being up and down. Uh, but when I uh, we have a, a industry subcommittee of the governing committee, and all the all the major wholesalers that supply the the uh, the retailers uh, are on that, and they they indicated that they're all seeing seeing increases in in business, but it, it, it's it varies from from store to store, and some stores have actually had to had to close either by choice or uh, by by being shut down by local government. Wow, that's really interesting. If they wouldn't even let them do the curbside delivery thing, yeah, and it's it's interesting because a, a lot of stores have to have a, a grocer's license because they're they're selling food products, uh, and so that in, in most cases has exempted them uh, as essential business. Uh, but uh, but I know, like in in California, the the beverage people in Santa Rosa, which is one of the first stores I was buying from back when I got started in the nineties, the Byron Birch's store, uh, they they got shut down by local government. And I know that there's several other stores in California that are that are in operation. So hmm. it, in that say, case, it's very localized. I was going to say it's interesting because all the homebrew stores I know in Los Angeles are all doing curbside pickup so because i think here in the county they got deemed as well you guys are selling food products so go forth yeah and, and we actually put uh, we put out a survey to of uh, uh homebrew supply shops and it's an ongoing thing so we're, we're continuing to get more responses but uh asking what uh, what kind of alternative purchasing they might be might be doing and so we've we created a separate directory for those stores on homebrewsassociation.org so if you're wondering if your if your local shop maybe doing uh, alternate business, you can check out our website and uh, see if they're on there. Man, that's that's a great service. Thank you guys for doing that. I would assume that that's not an easy thing to collect and collate all that info. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a, it, but it, it did seem like something that, that was important to do. Uh, and then you know we're we're also knowing that some of those stores are, are really hurting uh, under the circumstances. We we also uh, set up a. a a means by which um, homebrewers can can support both the AHA and their local homebrew supply shop at the same time. If you go to our our prime our main directory of uh, um, of shops on homebrewersassociation.org, you can pick any single shop out of there. Pick out your local shop. If you click on the the link, the support link there, it'll take you to our uh, our page where you can join the AHA, and we'll give five dollars back to that that store of your choice. Uh, yeah, another so way great. we 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 definitely we could use the support right now. I mean, we as as you guys know, we had to cl- uh, cancel national homebrew competition. Uh, that was a that was a pretty tough financial blow for us. Uh, so we could certainly use the, as much support as we can get, and to be able to support shops at the same time, uh, you know, really feels like a win win. So Gary, we be, we always talk to you about like AHA stuff, but let's. Let's talk about you <laughs> and, and your brewing. I, I've seen pictures of all this shiny stainless steel in your basement. So let's let's talk about your brewing setup and what you like to brew and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, I, I I'm fortunate that I have a wife that's fully supportive of uh, of my home brewing habits. Uh, she's actually been in the brewing industry longer than me. Her first job out of college was working for New Belgium Brewing Company back when they had. Uh, just over 20 employees. 
Uh, and she worked, we, we worked together at the Brewers Association for many years. She's currently working for, uh, for Lollaman, the youth supplier, um, which has an added bonus because at all times we have a, a refrigerator dedicated to, to yeast. And so I get that's got to be helpful. Any, any, uh, Lollaman yeast I could possibly want. Uh, that's definitely helpful. Uh, so she was very supportive when we decided we were going to finish our basement to, uh, segment out a part of our basement specifically for a, for a brewery. And, uh, so in that process, I put in a 240 volt outlet, uh, have a, um, uh, 240 volt, uh, 10 gallon electric brew system. Um, I just recently added a, a five gallon system because my wife Erin wanted to be doing some brewing with me, but my 10 gallon system was a little intimidating. So we've got one of the, the, the all in one, uh, electric, Five gallon brew brew kettle, uh, so so we're we're working off of both of those things. And um, I also have a very supportive wife, and not a lot of hobbies other than uh, than home brewing. So I I have a couple of conical fermenters and a, a glycol chiller. And I've got a dedicated uh, 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 kegerator. Yeah, I'm 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 pretty well styled at this point. <laughs> Yeah, I guess. So, so what do you like to brew with all this stuff? What are some of your favorite things to brew? Um, well, I, I guess like, like Drew, I'm, I'm big into, to Saison. So I've got a, a Saison going right now. Um, I, we're going to be tagging a, uh, actually, I think the last time I was on, I was talking about this, uh, we were brewing a, uh, a Belgian blonde with the, the Clyde Feast. Uh, so that's going to uh, get tagged. Tomorrow, uh, and then I'm I'm thinking I might be brewing a, a, a an Irish stout this weekend. See, wow! But, now this just makes me think, though, if you're just now kegging that Belgian blonde with the the quick yeast, you're doing it all wrong, man. You're supposed to be able to uh, keg that in five days. <laughs> you, you don't miss a beat, do you? Really, so, man? You know, it's it's the same thing with that particular yeast. Isn't it supposed it, to be it, three uh, days from brewing to drinking with that stuff? Yeah, yeah. So I pitched that yeast at, at 88 degrees, uh, and it it cranked for for a day. But I I had it in a stainless steel fermenter that wasn't insulated, and I didn't have a heater jacket or anything on that. And uh, so it, uh, it it started dropping temperature within a day, and you know it was going going really strong at first. I think I mentioned, like, I think first bubbles were coming out within a couple of hours of pitching the yeast. Uh, but then it dropped down to, got down to 67 because I'm in my basement. It's not the warmest part of my house. Uh, so, so it was just, it was sitting at 67 for two weeks and it was just going very slow. Just wouldn't stop. Kept going. Uh, so so I went and, and uh, ordered a, a heat jacket for uh, for my fermenter, put that on there, got it cranked back up to to eighty plus degrees, finished it out, and then uh, uh, put on my cooling jacket and dropped it to it's now at forty five degrees, ready to tend. Yeah, and I was very lucky. That so how not to brew with spike? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, man, you kind of did all the stuff they tell you not to do. Well, yeah, so apparently you do need to insulate your uh, your fermenter if you're going to be trying to maintain that that kind of temperature. Yeah, I was going to say I, I did one uh, one time when 
my brewery's out in the garage, and you know it's a single walled garage with no insulation, so it gets hot and cold as the wind blows. And I did a quiet, and I was very fortunate that the uh, fermenter that I have has an internal heater in there, and it kept it up at about like 90 degrees the whole time, even though it was you know howling cold in the 50s here. And howling cold in the fifties. <laughs> oh, Gary, do you hate him for that? Like I do. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist, but no, I mean, you, you're right. It, the, the heat, <laughs> the heat element is actually kind of important. So it's interesting to watch those performances. Uh, some of the quake strains are supposed to be much better about dealing with cold, uh, with cold temperatures. I just, I need to do that next. Yeah. You know, I have to admit that one of the reasons I haven't really gotten into into Quake East is because of the the strict high temperature requirements. Uh, I guess I could probably do it, but to tell you the truth, I also haven't really found a beer made with it I like well enough to be an incentive for me. Yeah, I haven't had enough of them to to really find out. And, uh, as I said, that was my my first experience with it, and I haven't even tried beer yet. <laughs> <laughs> the jury's out. Yeah, I, I keep hearing people say, oh, yeah, man, you know, I can make a Pilsner with it. It's really clean, and it, it's not that I doubt them. I just haven't had one yet. Uh, but on the other hand, I don't have a ton of experience having beers made with those strains. So uh, I'd, I'd sure like to have an example of one where it's fermented really clean in a few days, like they claim. Yeah, I don't know about the Pilsner thing. I, I, I like brewing Pilsners, but... Uh, I've yet to find a Pilsner brewed with an ale yeast that I thought was actually a Pilsner. <laughs> yeah, that can that doesn't can, mean it's not an enjoyable beer. Sure, you can you can make something if that's if that's what you want to do, and that's that's the beauty of home brewing is do what you want. Right, exactly, exactly. I could also say uh, we've we've been the AHA staff has been um, doing uh, virtual homebrew club meetings. Okay, since. We we all got very familiar with uh, with how to use WebEx. Right. Um, we we started just doing uh, you know, put it out there to to clubs. Well, we started with the the clubs that are in the the insurance program and just said, hey, if any, any you want to have HA staff person on a uh, on a virtual club meeting, we can set it up for you. Well, you know, and I I know I heard about our club getting one of those, and we were going to get back to you about something, and I don't know if anybody ever did or not. I, I don't know. We've got a list of about 100 clubs that have uh, <laughs> taken us up on it. Wow. Drew but, and I just did uh, the Joliet Brewers Society uh, via Zoom the other night. and uh, Nice. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's like we are more than happy to do that kind of stuff and help people out. Yeah, and I, that's yeah. one thing I think yeah, is really interesting in this time that we're in is the fact that, like, all this stuff that you we could have proposed this while people could get together and nobody would have taken us up on it. But or very few people take it take you up on it. And now my club's done virtual club meetings, and I gave a water talk that became an episode of the Brew, uh, Brew Files. And it's just interesting to see how people are using the the technology to still maintain a sense of community, which tells me that brewing is important for that. I'm always concerned after we talk to a homebrew club like that, though they're going, Jesus, what were we thinking? <laughs> I always, I always think it's amusing that people think it's a, an act. <laughs> yeah, no, we're really like that, folks. Uh, 
Well, Gary, thank you so much for taking the time to join us, man. Uh, and stay safe and keep on brewing and give Aaron a big hug for us. Yeah, absolutely. We'll do that. And yeah, you guys too. Stay, stay safe and, and everybody else out there. Stay safe and, and keep on brewing. Oh, hey, one last question. Are you going to be streaming your brew day uh, for Big Brew? Uh, I've heard about that being a possibility. I, I am I am not that technologically savvy, but so if somebody else can set it up for me, uh, we're going to do it. And, uh, you know, I've got a, one of one of my colleagues actually also lives in in Longmont. And we were thinking about uh, practicing uh, safe social distancing while while uh, recording a brew, brewing or live recording video brewing. Whatever it is, yeah, that, that thing. Uh huh. <laughs> well, cool, man. I hope you do. I would love to see all that shiny stuff in action. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 fun stuff, and you know, I example of uh, just how how far off the deep end I've gone into this hobby. <laughs> and don't forget tasting notes on that on that blonde. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah we want we want to hear how that turned out. We're both very very interested. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'll, I'll, I'll let you know. And if it, if it's good, then we're going to want the recipe so our listeners can give it a try, too. Sure. Cool. All right, buddy. Take care of yourself. We'll talk to you soon. Okay, you too. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. So are you signed up for uh, Virtual Big Brew? You know it. I, cool. I, I haven't decided what I'm going to make, but like I said, I suspect it's going to be some sort of saison. I'm going to be doing a version of my rye IPA recipe. Uh, I say a version because I don't think I have the exact hops on hand, but I got a whole freezer full of hops, so I'm sure I'll be able to make something out of it. The, the official recipe looks good, but very challenging in terms of finding the ingredients. The yeast is pretty much impossible to find, and the hops are very difficult at least. So, uh, you know, if you can't brew that, brew something. Yeah, and that's always been the point behind Big Brew. It's not just make this recipe or this other recipe. It's, here, make what you want to make, and we're all going to celebrate the fact that we're brewing. Well, and like I said, I'm excited to be able to brew uh, this year for Big Brew. I normally can't because normally it's the Southern California Homebrewers Festival, and, of course, that's been canceled. So, here we go. No SCHF, but I'm still brewing. Yeah, so uh, go to homebrewersassociation.org, sign up for the virtual Big Brew, uh, add your name to the list, and uh, we'll all be together, kind of. There you go. And who knows, we may even do something on that day just to have some fun, uh, so pay attention. Yeah, um, I may try streaming it, but um, my garage doesn't have great internet, so we'll just have to see how it works. Run a cord! <laughs> <laughs> I do have several hundred feet of Ethernet cable here, but uh, I, I doubt it. Okay, we are going to take a break here now, and when we come back, we will be wrapping things up with questions and answers, a quick tip, and something other. So stick around, and we'll be right back. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth-generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve MechaGrade. For more information, please visit MechaGrade.com. <laughs> Thank you. 
Welcome back, everybody. We're going to wrap this show up, and to do that, we start off with some questions and answers. And our first question comes from Ronnie Forster, who wrote into us and said, In your Pilpazon podcast, you threw out the idea of a lawnmower version of the Pilpazon. I need some lawnmower beer ideas, and this sounded like my ideal late afternoon beer to have while finishing up chores on the farm. Would just scaling down the grain bill get me what I'm looking for? Or are there other tweaks you suggest to keep this beer enjoyable while lowering the ABV into the 4.5 to 5 range? Denny? There are two ways that people generally go about this, and I think that we represent both of them. <laughs> I uh, I tend to just scale everything proportionally. Uh, you know, I build my recipes by using percentages of malt, and I like to see those percentages remain the same when I scale the whole thing up or down. So I I do that. You're the just scale the base malt school, is that correct? Yes. Uh, well, it, typically. So, I mean, for me, I I will, particularly with this recipe, because remember, the base malt is the vast majority of what's in this, and there's just a tiny little bit of wheat and a tiny little bit of acidulated malt. And so it didn't make, when I look at that recipe, it doesn't make much sense to do reductions on those, because they're already so so small in terms of percentage of the beer. So, I mean, in this case, it, I mean, you're really talking about, what, knocking off like about a pound of base malt in order to get that recipe down, because it's already like six. Yeah, it really isn't that high to start with, even. Yeah, so, I mean, usually usually most of the time I will look at scaling back the, the base malt just a little bit more than I do any of the specialty malts. And in the case of this beer, since the specialty malts are so small and <laughs> relatively pale, uh, I wouldn't scale those back at all. I'd just take, like, the pound out of the, pill, the pills and go with it. I think that in this case, that would probably work okay. Uh, again, though, you know, I just – I like to keep everything the same. I think the uh, takeaway, though, is that either way will work, and it may take you a couple iterations to get to exactly what you're going for. So uh, pick one way or the other, give it a try, and adjust the next time. Or, of course, uh, you could – just be like us and get lucky on the first pass. <laughs> yeah, uh, you must get lucky more often than I do. The next question is for Drew, because it's about Saison. And it comes from Mike Humphreys of Houston. Mike says, I brewed a Saison last Saturday, and as best I could, followed your guidance on open fermentation as listed on the Maltos Falcons website. The grain bill is 9 pounds of pure Idaho malt and 12 ounces of carafoam. Hops are EKG, Styrian, Solera, and Zot. The Pilsner malt was a raffle win, and the hops are a combination of what the local homebrew shop had on hand and what I had on hand. I co-pitched 37.24 and 5.65, three days at 65 degrees, and then I moved it into the house and stuck it in a closet that I can get up to 75. I took a gravity reading today, and I'm showing 10.13. OG was 10.57. Looking at the published attenuation for 3724 would yield an FG of 1011 to 1014, and for 565, an FG of 1009 to 1013. The wort is currently inside the minimum attenuation for both yeasts. There's not a lot of activity in the wort, and the croissant has fallen. There are a few bubbles on top. Do you think there will be further attenuation? Should I fill up the airlock at this point, or let it ride a little bit longer? Uh, I definitely have thoughts on this, but you get to go first. Yep. I think there will be additional attenuation because the Saison yeast tend to be fairly aggressive. I'm actually surprised that it hasn't dropped further than it already has. But at this point in time, if the Corazon has fallen, yeah, fill the airlock. 
Yeah, because you're already saying your activity is slowing down, and if your activity is slowing down, you're starting to lose the protection of that evolving CO2. So get it covered. Let it wait. Yep, exactly. Uh, open fermentation is great as long as there's croissant there. Once the croissant is gone, your open fermentation time is over. Now, the, the comments I would like to make are, number one, you're at 1013. One of the yeasts was saying 1011, so, you know, you're not, you're not that far off. Number two, one of the big takeaways I got from the book Brew Like a Monk was when Stan said that for a Belgian yeast, the last 10% of attenuation can take as long as the first 90%. So be patient. And the third thing is, I go through this all the time, man. People look at the attenuation ratings for yeast and just think, oh, that's what I'm going to get. Maybe, maybe not. Remember that these attenuation ratings are really a method of comparing one strain to another using, say, a standardized word, and they really don't necessarily reflect the attenuation you'll get. You can get more than that. You can get less than that. Using the same yeast and varying the word composition, I can get any place from, say, 60 to 90% attenuation. So, you know... Those ratings are there for a reason, but it's to kind of give you a comparison value between different yeasts. You may get that attenuation. You may not get that attenuation. But especially in Mike's case here, he's so close, I really wouldn't sweat it. Uh, you know, if he likes the way the beer tastes now, keg it up. If not, let it go a little bit longer. But for goodness sake, do not sweat two points of attenuation. Yeah, as we've seen in studies from various people and groups, people have a hard time tasting the difference between attenuation levels. So there you go. And yeah, again, I would probably let it, I would definitely airlock it. And then I would also definitely let it wait, you know, like a week or two and see where it goes. I mean, I probably wouldn't go two weeks. I'd probably just wait a week and then say, okay, I think we're done. Yeah, if it doesn't move in a week, it's not going to move in two weeks. And our final question this week comes from listener Gavin Martin from Los Angeles. He's also a member of the Maltos Falcons. So, hi, Gavin. Based partially on your invaluable advice, I've never sweated post-boil volume, but instead concentrated on hitting target gravity. I used to deliberately underestimate mash efficiency, then top off with water if necessary to match planned pre-boil gravity. This should be undershooting and doing a longer-than-planned boil or adding DME. To fine-tune the post-boil gravity, I can crank up the boil rate to raise OG, or add water near the end of the boil to lower it. I have an E-Herms rig, so an electric Herms, and have always been pained by the arduous fly sparging required. After recently upgrading my mash ton volume, I went to no sparge to save time. I have to say without hesitation that this single change has improved my beer more than anything else I've done, with maybe the exception of fermentation temperature control. I read that the dilution of typical full-volume mashes reduces enzyme effectiveness at conversion, similar to nutritionalists telling you not to drink water during a meal. I therefore do old-school no-sparge mashing at regular mash thickness, and then topping up to full volume right before laudering. I am now able to adjust the top-up water volume in the mash tun to get to my exact pre-boil gravity. This has really simplified and speeded up my brew day. If one views malt extraction somewhat akin to olive oil pressing, the more you extract, the less virgin extract you get, and returns diminish in quality rapidly at some point. 
I know there is some debate about this, but for me, no sparge has resulted in perceptibly more flavorable beer. I'm sure you can find some holes in my logic. I'd love to hear your opinions on my methods. I know I'm exemplifying the wastefulness and impatience inherent in our society today, but I'm willing to bear that stigma in the interest of making, potentially, better beer. What do you think, Denny? Well, yes and no. <laughs> or, or maybe a definite maybe. Uh, I remember uh, Kai Troister back in the old days who always used to say the first word is the best word. Uh, and yeah, that's true. Does no sparge brewing make better beer necessarily and always? Uh, I, I don't think I could go that far. Uh, Gavin, if you think that your beer is turning out better for it, then good on you. I've done no sparge a couple different ways. Number one, as you do it. Number two, just by mashing with the full volume of water. And I couldn't tell a whole lot of difference. Uh, I do not believe that the dilution of a typical full volume mash reduces the effectiveness of the enzymes. Uh, but I suppose if you went enough volume that it, it might, uh, I haven't found that to be the case in experimenting with uh, different mash ratios. So I don't know about that. So all of this uh, prevaricating basically comes down to, man, if you think that your beer is better and that your brew day is better, then you are doing exactly the right thing. Yeah. I mean, again, this comes down to the enjoyment. And at the end of the day, are you enjoying the beer that's in your keg? And I know, yeah, I remember Kai saying that's the stuff about, you know, no sparge and the first runnings. The thing is, I mean, it, we know that sparging was basically a process brought in to maximize extraction, right? Because at a commercial level, that costs money. I mean, at our level, it costs a little bit of money and costs some time. But really, sparging was there to eke every last little bit you could out of grain. And as you said, it may be wasteful, but for you in particular, if that taste is what you want, and I know people will claim that no sparge makes incredibly malt forward and rich beers. If that's the taste that you want in your beer, then... Go for it. There's there's absolutely nothing that says that you have to sparge. So go make your beer. No. And hey, turns out if you uh, if you're liking the process, you're going to brew more. And another suggestion I would have for Gavin, if he hasn't already, is to try batch sparging, because that takes very little time and uh, it's as certain uh, with your volumes as what he's doing is. So you know, Gavin, if you haven't tried it, you might want to give that a quick shot and see what you think. But you know. But it's up to you, bud. There you go, indeed. So that's our questions for the week. I think it's time for us to well, get people out of here. Okay, and we do that with a quick tip. I have the quick tip this week based on my Ublon uh, brewing session. This is something I learned from experience, and it's a two-part <laughs> tip. Part number one is if you hear water running someplace, don't just say, I wonder what that is, and keep doing what you were doing. And tip number two is close the valve on your fermenter before you fill it, because that water you hear running is probably the wort coming out of your fermenter. Yeah, I, I don't think I've ever moved as fast in my entire life as I ever do whenever I realize I've left a kettle valve open or, yeah, the, the base valve on a conical open. Yeah, I, I, apparently I can turn into Usain Bolt at that point. <laughs> 
Yeah, I only lost about a quart, so it wasn't, you know, like, like a real disaster. And as soon as I realized what it was, I said to myself, oh yeah, when I emptied out the sanitizer, it was like, I need to go close that valve. But then I started doing something else. You know, you know how easy it is to get distracted when you're brewing. What, uh, the, what squirrel? <laughs> yeah. The good news is that for the uh, no tie brown ale I made for the next batch, uh, I had learned my lesson and everything went well in that regard. Yeah. This is the reason why people make checklists for any sort of thing that requires actual serious work, you know, with serious consequences. Because, yeah, the human brain is terrible at the idea of multitasking and going off and saying, okay, I'll remember to close that before I do this, but first I got to do that because by the time you're done doing that, you forgot to do this. Exactly, man. And the older you get, the more it happens. And, of course, we always leave you with something other than beer because we always need something other than beer. And we know that these times are weird and there's a lot of uh, new entertainment and new beer delivery services popping up. Yay. And I think one of the best ones I've seen is Some Good News from John Krasinski of The Office and his wife, Emily Blunt. And it is a YouTube channel that they've started where they are doing a weekly show to bring you some good news. And it's obviously filmed in their home with, you know, sort of cheesy poster board uh, signs. And the episodes that I've watched so far, they did some really cool things. Like they talked to a nine-year-old girl who for her, for her birthday was going to go see a performance of Hamilton, you know, the traveling performance. And of course can't because reasons. And so John Krasinski interviewed her about it and then had the entire original Broadway cast of Hamilton show up via zoom singing Alexander Hamilton, the opening number. And if that doesn't hit you right in the feels, I don't know what will uh, really kind of cool to see that. And then just the, the last episode they did, the Red Sox uh, awarded a trip to Fenway while it's empty to the COVID unit, at Beth Israel, along with a whole bunch of stuff for when the seasons actually do get started up again. Really kind of cool. And then just this past Friday, uh, he and his wife did a Some Good News prom for all the seniors out there who can't have their uh, prom this year. So, some good news. I think that's just cool beyond belief, man. Yeah. So, Some Good News on YouTube, John Krasinski, Emily Blunt, fantastic, and something that I've been enjoying. And what about you, sir? You know what, man? I am on a Monty Don kick these days. Uh, I uh, have been watching the new show, well, the new episodes of Gardener's World. This is a show that's actually been on for 52 years. It started in 1968. And uh, they have a number of hosts, uh, but it, it's mainly Monty, filmed at his estate, Long Meadow, with his two gorgeous golden retrievers that he's got. So, you know, in these days, I need calm and I need friendliness, and that's what Monty's doing for me. There you go. Always always good to find that sort of stuff. And, of course, don't forget, as one of our listeners pointed out, you have time on your hands. You can read The Wheel of Time and lots of other long books. I still got to make my way through The Way of the King. I keep picking that up, <laughs> and I keep having to put it back down. Yeah, Ugh. man. It's uh, uh, you know, I'm just I'm just going through lots of movies and lots of British gardening series, and uh, you know, like I mentioned a couple episodes back, we just got uh, BritBox, and there are just a ton of my favorite British uh, comedies on there. So we've been going through a lot of those that we've loved for years. Go have a laugh, or go do something in your kitchen or your brewery. I made biscuits yeah. today. That was awesome. Yeah. 
to just something calm and mellow and take your mind off things. And hey, don't forget, be thankful for what we got. That's right, man, uh, because it's we still have it. Okay, I think it's time to get out of here. Thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, which is experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget that you can follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Uh, Drew hangs out on the homebrewing subreddit and the Slack homebrew channel. I spend a lot of time on the AHA discussion forum and a bunch of other ones, and you can catch us both on Facebook about at any time. If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics or recipes or just even rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And you can leave us a voicemail or shoot us a text at 626 626- 765-1-ALE. That's 626-765-1253. So, until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. (laughs) 